1: behind the scenes footage and so much more if you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today that's podcasts with an s thank you for listening and thank you for your support from kqed
2: welcome back to forum i'm mina kim it's been 30 years since Anita Hill testified before an all-male, all-white Senate Judiciary Committee during Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation that Thomas had sexually harassed her. In her new book, Believing: Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence, Hill reflects on that time and on the 2018 testimony of Christine Blasey Ford, laying bare both the faults in our confirmation process and the systemic faults that enable gender-based violence to persist. Professor Hill, welcome to Forum.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I'm so struck that it's 30 years ago next week. Your testimony, it sparked a much-needed national conversation on sexual harassment. And, you know, in 2017, we had Me Too Yet I was struck that in 2018, when Christine Blasey Ford was set to testify that then Judge Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her, you said you had no hope that the Senate Judiciary Committee overseeing his confirmation would listen or fully investigate her allegations. Why were you so skeptical
3: well, I had limited hope. I, I would say <laughs> I, 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 w- I was hoping that 2018 would not be a repeat of 1991, mm-hmm. and in fact, um, I had written a piece in the New York Times and said these are some things that you need to do. Um, the leadership of the Senate Judiciary Committee did not follow my suggestions, and when we went into the the day of the hearing and Uh, Seemingly, no, nothing had changed. I mean, Christine Blasey Ford went into a process not really knowing exactly how it was going to go. Uh, The rest of the public watched, not knowing exactly what to expect. Um, And and we see that the repeat was that there was not an adequate investigation. In fact, there was a real constraint put on the investigation uh, into the, the the charges that she raised. Um, it sort of did away with the hope that we had.
2: I've often wondered what it was like for you to watch her testimony. You said that your heart, stomach, and head were with Christine Blasey Ford. What came up for you as you watched her testify?
3: Well, when I... Uh had a chance to see her I really saw someone who was sincerely trying to be heard and and trying to be a a part of a process that she should have been a part of uh, to be taken seriously and to be very thoughtful about what she was saying and why it was so important in determining the character and fitness of an individual who's going to be sitting on the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment. Uh, But I also thought that whatever the outcome of the day or the outcome in the days to come after the hearing, uh, whatever the vote was, that her life was going to be changed forever.
2: Your life was changed forever. Um, I I was struck by... All the letters, all the all the support that you received, um which was important to hear because we so often hear when when women come forward to challenge powerful men, the extent to which they receive death threats, they receive terrible um terrible threats and really th- calls that are intimidating or other ways that uh, they are bullied. Or attacked. And certainly there was no shortage of that for you as well. But you focus a lot on how much you heard from people, stories that um, that they had never shared with their own family members. Are there a couple that, that really stood out for you and inspired you to continue being vocal about what happened to you and, and the reasons that it happened to you?
3: Well, first of all, let me just say that, that the way um, the things that happened to me after the hearings, the hearing was not, they were not separate from the hearing itself. Mm-hmm. I think had there been a fair hearing where all of the witnesses could have been heard, that the public reaction would have been much better much more informed and and much more understanding of why it was that I testified. Um, That didn't happen. Nevertheless, some people understood, many people did. And I got those letters of support. And of course, in that package of mail every day that I got, there were negative letters too. I mean, some partially negative letters, uh, including threats. But the ones that um, were so helpful to me is it be, because when I left Washington and there was a vote to confirm Clarence Thomas, I think to all appearances, or to, it, it seemed to many people anyway, that I had lost, that I had gone and I had attempted to do some, something that was uh, important for the country to be aware of. Um, to be a part of that process and that I had lost and so it was surprising and, and affirming to hear from people who had similar experiences um, or maybe not even the same experiences but people who uh, had different experiences but but whose experiences related uh, to mine. Um, a couple um, were uh, really important. One was a, from a man who called me on the telephone. It wasn't a letter. He called me on the telephone and said to me um, in this very kind of um, soft voice, and I, that I couldn't quite interpret initially. But he said to me, "You have opened a whole can of worms." And I really didn't know what that meant. I didn't right. know if he was going to, you know, then sort of sort of go and and you know chastise me for speaking out. Um, but then ultimately what happened was that he told me that he had been an incest victim mm-hmm. at, as a young boy, and that he attempted to tell his parents about what had happened to him, but they resisted. They, uh, they uh, told him, accused him of making things up. Um, they sided with his abuser, a family member. And, um, and it had, of course, left a scar um, uh, on him. But he said, when he saw the Senate Judiciary Committee's reaction to me, it was like reliving the experience with his parents. But he then understood it better because he realized that he wasn't alone, that uh, there were probably many other people, but to but to see um, that as a, 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 a as, as someone who has been victimized, to hear that they had gotten some uh, comfort from watching the senate judiciary committee that they felt stronger about their own hurt and pain and their their right to be angry and disappointed Um, to me that was that was really eye-opening i had have had other uh stories that have come to me some told to me some in writing i had um uh, some are successful, people who are survivors and or who have been victimized, who have uh, recovered in, in, on their own uh, or, or through the help of families. Um, one woman who was an intimate partner violence victim told me um, in, in a meeting in Kansas City, Missouri, I won't forget it. She said to me, I left my husband because of you. Hmm. And I thought, well, what does that mean and and she she explained um, she actually said it jokingly, but she she explained that when she watched the hearing that she saw that she had to leave an abusive relationship that she was in that she was married to a man who was an abuser, and she knew um and got strength from my testimony, to get out of that marriage. And she, she was successful. She had the help of her family. They supported her. Um, those are stories about people who have, have made it through difficult experiences and difficult times and moved on and made, I won't say made peace with it, but made sense out of what it was and what they had to do. But I've heard from so many others uh, that have been experienced in experiences that were just uh, really horrific experiences for anyone to have. Uh, And who don't, who aren't successful, who leave Um, Disappointed in their maybe in their friends or their colleagues or family members, uh, and who leave very disappointed in the systems that are out there that are supposed to protect them from these kinds of harms.
2: We're talking with Anita Hill. Her new book is Believing Our 30 year journey to end gender violence. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Do you remember the Clarence Thomas? Hearing in Anita Hill's testimony, what impact did it have on you? 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. What would you like to ask or tell Anita Hill? You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm so struck by what you said earlier that some of the harshest and most horrific letters that you got or communication that you received after the testimony were not that different than what you experienced during the hearing itself. And there have been more than a number of times that we've heard the tape, and you can hear the tape, of the way that you were questioned. Your experience was was minimized, undercut, and you yourself were were seemingly put on trial for coming forward with information that you thought would be notable and important for them about someone they were considering, as you say, for a lifetime appointment. You also just mentioned the witnesses a little bit ago, and it has become known more now that three other women were prepared to testify of their own experience of harassment from Clarence Thomas, and another woman was prepared to corroborate those stories, but were never called by the committee Of course, it was then Delaware Senator Joe Biden who presided over those hearings, and I know that he's attempted to apologize for the way that he handled them. Curious what he said to you when he apologized in March of 2019 and what you thought of his attempt at an apology.
3: Well, he did apologize to me personally um, for the harm that he had been caused in terms of his management of the the hearing itself. Um, What he didn't do was to apologize for what harm was done to the really the American public, Uh, but others, uh, particularly other survivors, the three witnesses, the fourth witness who could corroborate, uh, victims and survivors who were hoping that their government would in fact provide them with some kind of model or some kind of indication that their claims would be taken seriously if they came forward. Um, Those were not forthcoming. And and, and that apology was not forthcoming. And, and, And I want to give it a little bit of context because we weren't talking about 1991 the hearing occurred and then the apology came in 1992 <laughs> we, yes. we were talking about an apology that um came in 2019 and so i really after the hearing was have been on a journey and 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 it took me a while to to get to the place of accepting even the personal apology that Joe Biden issued, Uh, but it also took me a while to understand why that wasn't enough. Because there was great damage done by that hearing and it could have been handled differently. And the damage wasn't just to me. It was to, um, as I say, victims and survivors everywhere, their supporters, their families, but really it really damaged the trust that the American public had in the senate um, as well as the uh, judiciary and um, and quite frankly there still is no process in place to address these kinds of claims that undoubtedly will come before the senate judiciary committee or some other committee that is considering a nominee for high office in this country
2: so there's no process in terms of where to go if you want to share something that you think is important information to share. No process for investigating thoroughly those claims. It sounds like. What else is missing?
3: Well, I think it's clearly what uh, I'm I'm trying to to convey in in believing is that. When you look at the, all of the evidence, when you look at the high rates of intimate partner violence, for example, one out of every four women will experience intimate partner violence. That means about 10 million people uh, every year will be victims. And that includes, of course, family members who are are victimized because of it. Um, When you look at the uh, high level of sexual assault and, and on campus college campuses well again another one out of every four women going into college will experience a sexual assault uh, over their uh, at some point in their time on, on college campuses when you see students in the street today um, marching in protest uh, of, of the rate of sexual uh, assaults and rapes um, and targeting fraternities where uh, there have been well-known cases of, of sexual assault happening within these organizations. Um, when you, I mean, if you, what I wanted to do when I started to hear from people who had experienced intimate partner violence or incest or sexual assault or rape or bullying in school because of their gender. What I wanted to do was to look at the whole of the problem. And what has been missing is any agenda for addressing the whole of what I call gender-based violence as it has come to me through the letters, through the people I've engaged with in conversation. Um, through reading the newspaper accounts of what's going on in just about every one of our institutions in this country. And that is what's missing, an acknowledgment of, of the problem and a commitment to do something about it.
2: Deca tweets, I was 19 years old and realized deeply the bravery displayed by Ms. Hill during these excruciating hearings. It was beyond disappointing the way she was treated. It was appalling. I will never get over that. We're talking with Anita Hill, Professor Anita Hill, Professor of Social Policy, Law and Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Brandeis University. Her new book is Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Stay with us for more. You can call with your thoughts and questions, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can tell us what impact The 1991 hearings had on you, and as you listen to Anita Hill describe the pervasiveness of gender violence in the U.S., what your reactions are to that. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Thirty years ago, Anita Hill told a Senate Judiciary Committee and millions of Americans that sexual harassment was not okay, ultimately inspiring waves of victims to come forward and demand change. But Hill says she's grown impatient with the pace of that change, which she says is slow in part because gender-based violence is cultural and endemic would love to hear from you, our listeners, on your memories of that testimony 30 years ago, what impact it had on you, your thoughts on how to address the pervasiveness of gender-based violence in the U.S. 866-733-6786 is the number, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at org. Joanna in Sonoma, thanks for calling. Hi, Joanna.
0: Hi. Hi. Um... I was thirty um, when I watched the hearings, and um, the feeling in my chest um, of hopelessness when I saw the result of Ms Hill's testimony will never leave me. she was she was me, she was intelligent, she was articulate, she was poised, she was confident, and no one heard her, and just hearing her voice today is bringing back a feeling in my body of of that that day, of those days, of watching that and just being incredibly amazed that this could happen in this country. Um, I have not experienced violence, fortunately, in a um, firsthand way. However, I know uh, enough friends and people who have and I have to salute uh, Ms. Hill for her ongoing crusade to work on this. I mean, where do, where do we retrain men that it is not okay to do this stuff? I don't know. But I just want to um, tell Ms. Hill just, I mean, the feeling I have today, just hearing her voice again, is bringing back that appalling, appalling testimony, uh, how nobody listened and nobody heard um, what was clearly she radiated truth.
2: Well, Joanna, thanks. And Professor Hill, you're welcome to react to Joanna's comment. But also, I'm curious about your answer to her question about how do we address this? You say that you know your goals, especially for this book, are as enormous, your goals are as enormous as the problem itself. How do we begin the process of addressing gender violence?
3: Yes, well, you know, as uh, as someone had mentioned uh, when I was try- started talking about taking on this issue, it, it it is because it's so vast, because it's so embedded in our processes and systems, and and in in our thinking about victims and victimization. Um, it's a bit like boiling the ocean. And the question is, where do you start? And I have a couple of different approaches. Um, First of all, we have to recognize that, yes, there's bad behavior. um, But we also know that it's not just individual behavior that is a problem. It's cultures that uh, protect and cover it. It's... um, Systems that get embedded in with uh, these cultural denials—I call them—that support uh, the believing, believing the accused uh, as opposed to fair, fairly balancing the evidence. Um, you know, so we've got to deal with all three. We've got to deal with the behavior, and we've got to deal with the culture um, that. You know, excuses that in many cases, and says things like, "Well, boys will be boys," and then the systems that come out of that. One of the other way to look at it, though, is is what I've done with the book in terms of organizing it. I do talk about the hearing, it's really, as sort of the bad model for how we should be handling these claims, whether it's sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, but I also track the behavior from elementary schools up through elementary and secondary schools, high schools, through um, young working lives of people, whether uh, they're college educated or no, I, I, I track the problem in college. And then I look at how it presents itself throughout people's lives or working lives and as well as as the problem of uh, the domestic violence, violence within the homes where, that people experience. And so that is sort of, where is it happening? And what are the similarities between all of those experiences? And what are the, all of the consequences? One of the things that i found is that if you experience Uh, a kind of bullying and and sexual harassment um, and as as an elementary or a high school student, then you are more likely, according to this research, to experience it later in life, whether it's in college or in the workplace. So we have these experiences that are going over and over again. Also, if you experience a problem and, for example, you report it and you go to your school and, and the principal or a counselor and they don't respond, they don't provide any mechanism for you to get some kind of relief or protection um, that you typically will not report as you get older because you've already been groomed to believe that what is happening to you isn't significant enough. Right for anybody to intervene in. So there's some things that we can learn by just looking at the trajectory of this experience. And as I say, starting young to to respond to uh, the caller's question, starting young uh, in making sure that abusers know from a very early age that that behavior is not acceptable.
2: What have been the results of attempts to try to understand and to quantify the cost of gender-based violence on a nation even on an economy
3: It's been very piecemeal at best um, a couple of years ago I think now maybe maybe only a year and a half ago though uh, Senators Diane Feinstein uh, uh, Kristen Gildebrand, Patty Murray, and Elizabeth Warren approached our government agencies about quantifying the cost of sexual harassment alone, sexual harassment in the workplace. What does it cost us? What does it cost the U.S. economy? And The answer that they got back was, well, we know that it costs in terms of health issues. We know it it costs in in terms of the long uh, of of production. Um, We know that it costs in terms of litigation. Uh, But beyond those categories, they couldn't say how much it was costing. And as far as I can tell, that information is not available. It's not collected. Well, and, and, you know, as as the old song goes, you can't fix what you don't acknowledge and measure. And so if we don't acknowledge and measure it, if we don't think enough of of the significance of it uh, to start to get those measures, we're going to always be absorbing those costs and not even knowing exactly why we're absorbing them, or what we can do about it.
2: Trudy writes, I was in my early 30s during the hearing, and I can't tell you how much it affected me. Dr. Hill bravely spoke of something that I had endured my whole working life, gave it a name, and made it something that was not in my imagination. I continue to consider her my hero. Let me go to Caroline in Santa Barbara. Hi, Caroline.
0: Hi. I was in a residency for obstetrics and gynecology, and myself and my other physician friend, who was at that time the first female in a more than 50-year-old urology program, were watching, and what we learned is that women who came forward got punished. But we were also awed by your courage. And today I have three feminist sons who understand that you are a
2: hero. Caroline, thank you. Um, Thank you. I wonder what it's like for you, um, Anita Hill, as cases come before Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh, cases even most recently, or as one didn't really come before them, but they were making decisions most recently about whether to hear cases about a right to an abortion, even for victims of of sexual assault. Um, how how do you think about the effect of having two justices that have been credibly accused, um, though they were not found or they did not end up enduring the consequence of, of not being able to be confirmed? What that's like and how you would like us to think about it?
3: You know, and that is is one of the things that I, I mentioned earlier that I think we haven't taken full account of. And that is the lack of trust or the loss in trust in the integrity of our courts. Um, the hearings had an impact on that. You know, I've heard from people who uh, who uh, look at Justice Kavanaugh and, and Justice Thomas and and understand how they got on the court. Um, and, and they question whether or not there can be fairness uh, coming from those two experiences because of the way that they responded to the hearings, but also just in terms of the process um, that that got them there. Uh, and, and as somebody who, um, I'd say, grew up in the era of Brown versus Board of Education and then the civil rights movement. You know, I'm, I know personally how important law is and how, how important it is in the lives of, of many people who may not even experience it in the same way that I do. But the highest court in the in land is only as trustworthy as its members are. And I think um, when we see a process that puts people in in ways that we don't trust, then it's going to have an impact on our respect for the institution itself.
2: Yes, if we're not seeing it fully investigated so that we can get to, to truth, it does end up devolving into one person's word against another's and... Well,
3: and, and, and in some ways, that's almost what it's intended, because the default uh, mm-hmm. is very often that, that people will go with whoever is the most powerful in that equation, um, that people would defer to power uh, when they don't get all of the facts. Uh, we had a very, I think, important development in the sense um, in the case involving former Governor Cuomo in New York where the Attorney General, State's Attorney General in in New York, Letitia James, did a very thorough investigation of the claims that had been brought uh, against Governor Cuomo. Um, They were, um, the witnesses were called on both sides. Um, There was a report, an extensive report on how the he, how uh, the investigation took place, who all uh, was called, why they were called, um, what the analysis of the information led her to conclude, and an announcement about that, very public, very transparent, very clear. And an announcement was made, and there was ultimately accountability. Um, and I think that that process actually... Satisfied a lot of people, you will, I, I noticed that the conversation about who was being truthful, whether it was he or him or her uh was really reduced significantly by having that process. I think the public wants that they expect it, they demand it, and they not only want it in our political processes or when the politicians are accused um, they want it in when the private organizations, when there's when accusation in, the, uh, in, a, in a corporate setting. And so it's important for us to know that, that there are ways that we can give people more confidence uh, and, and that those are the things that we should be investing
2: in. We're talking with Anita Hill, Professor of Social Policy, Law, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Brandeis University. Her new book is Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A few more comments. Bridget writes, I would like to thank Professor Hill for her bravery and all she stands for on behalf of all women. I am honored to hear her on your program today. Robert writes, I believed you then, Anita Hill, and now. Our country is fortunate people like you stand up as courageous models for us all. Thank you. Laurie writes, I just wanted to share one very important silver lining in our community as a result of Anita Hill's bravery in testifying against Clarence Thomas. I was teaching at a local community college at the time, and we started the Women's Concerns Council right after the trial. And from that, we started a women's center that lasted for 20 years, a place where women felt safe coming to, finding resources as well as empowerment. Thank you, Anita Hill, for your bravery. It went a long way. Anita Hill, I'm curious about your thoughts on the Me Too movement, what it's been effective in addressing, and where you feel like it needs to go from here.
3: Well, the movement really was an awareness raising movement, and, and it didn't happen from, you know, out of, uh, you know, on, on its own. I think the movement was a result of many years of activism. And many years of people speaking out, maybe not getting the high level exposure that they should have gotten, but getting, you know, having people understand uh, the seriousness of the problem. Um, And I think it, you know, exploded with, you know, 19 million tweets where people um, told about their experiences. That was the job that they did to, to affirm victims and survivors around the globe, to tell people not to believe the lie that, that the problem of gender violence wasn't serious or that it wasn't pervasive. Um, they, they gave evidence really that it was and, and continues to be. Uh, And it's now time for us to figure out what we can do with all of that. You know, I think you know I talk about our thirty-year journey. I don't think it began in 1991, and I don't think it needs to end in in, uh, thirty years later. I think it's an ongoing journey to get to some answers. And in between 1991 and the Me Too movement in 2017, there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of advocacy. There were a number of organizations that sprung up to address these issues. I think what that means is that we are now poised to effectuate some of the change that Me Too demands, Um, that our leaders need to take the lead on it, though.
2: And it sounds like, yes, our leaders do need to, but it also, I can hear in your answer where you still have a lot of hope professor hill (laughs) well i want to thank you yes i don't know if you have a final thought we just have about 10 seconds or so
3: i I, I absolutely have hope and i believe that change is possible but that we all have to commit to it
2: anita hill her new book believing our 30-year journey to end gender violence next week marks 30 years since her testimony at the hearing of clarence thomas Thank you to listeners for sharing your reflections and experiences and questions. And thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
1: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED
3: Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.